Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I should never have gotten on that airplane. This was about three years ago now, and I was not feeling very well. I had a stuffy nose and a bit of a cough and a touch of fatigue, but it was a Sunday afternoon, and I'm always tired on Sunday afternoons, so I downplayed the symptoms. And besides, I've been looking forward to this trip for weeks. Every January, I go to St. Pete's Beach in Florida for a UCC clergy conference. It's a rare opportunity to catch up with friends and colleagues from all over the country, to compare notes with some of the best minds in my field, faithful pastors of vital churches who have mentored me in my own work. And of course, I also get to go to a warm, sunny beach in the dead of winter and abdicate all parenting responsibilities for three days. So even when I was feeling ill, you can imagine why I talked myself into going. Stick to the plan, I foolishly told myself. The trip itself went poorly. My flight was delayed, and then an unforeseen layover cost me several more hours. All the while, my illness seemed to be growing worse by the minute. My eyes were watery and itchy, my throat aching, my skin cold and clammy. By the time I stumbled into my hotel room at 3 o'clock, in the morning, I collapsed on the bed, and sleep took me where I fell. I awoke the next morning in a world of hurt. Feverish, aching, my tongue swollen, my throat on fire. I managed to drag myself to the bathroom sink for a drink of water and saw a ghastly reflection in the mirror. My hair was wild, my beard unkempt. That much was typical but my eyes had also turned a pinkish red with the onset of viral conjunctivitis. Pink eye. I spent the next three days in a fever dream, slipping in and out of consciousness. I can recall one attempt to participate in the conference, hauling myself to a session with Reverend John Dorhauer, president of the United Church of Christ. I fell into a seat beside a colleague who didn't seem to recognize me beneath the hoodie, sweatshirt, and sunglasses. Within five minutes, I realized I'd better retreat to my hotel room before I fell out of my chair and caused a scene. Later that night, I had a ravenous craving for fresh fruit, something cold to soothe my burning throat. I found a tropical fruit plate on the room service menu and called it in, waiting desperately for it to arrive. An hour passed, then two, I finally picked up the phone to ask what was taking so long. I'm sorry, sir, the man on the other end of the phone told me, not sounding very sorry at all. We forgot to process that order. We'll send it up right away. Forty-five minutes later, my overpriced tropical fruit plate finally arrived. It was a flavorless assortment of the least interesting fruit you can imagine, a dreary and wet pile of sliced melons distinctly lacking in flavor. Like everything else on this trip, it tasted like disappointment. 
I find that I'm almost always disappointed, actually, whenever I get any kind of takeout. Drive-through fast food is the worst offender. It's not that I have especially high standards. I mean, if I'm eating Burger King takeout, I'm not expecting too much to begin with. But having a fair bit of experience with this sort of thing, I can say with confidence that no matter where I go, they're likely to get the order wrong. Like, 90% of the time. There's always a missing hamburger or an order of chicken nuggets that's vanished into the aether like some unfortunate crew of airmen that flew into the Bermuda Triangle and never came home. I don't write online reviews very often, and I almost never write anything negative, but there was one time, after yet another mishap, that I got on the computer and posted a bad review for a local fast food establishment that shall remain nameless. A few minutes later, I realized that the missing French fries that had set me off were actually under the napkins at the bottom of the bag. I almost felt a little bad, but what I'd said was still true, so I left it up anyway. Needless to say, my disappointment at the drive-thru is hardly worth complaining about. First world problems, as they say. But lately, we have been experiencing more profound disappointments on a grand scale. So many plans, so many hopes and anticipated celebrations have been wrecked or infinitely postponed in the wake of this spreading pestilence. Our high school and college students were supposed to be graduating this month, walking with their peers to receive hard-earned diplomas. Grand, elaborate wedding ceremonies have been replaced by smaller, more intimate affairs with only a handful of people. Memorial services and celebrations of life have been put on hold, periods of grief and mourning extended as family and friends postpone that critical act of closure. We've had to deal with closure of a different kind, the cessation of communal activity that has impacted our lives and our church, pushing the things we normally celebrate this time of year into an unknown future. Of course, this is all to say nothing. The 350,000 lives lost the ubiquitous virus that has upended the world, nearly a third of them here in the States. More shattered dreams and ruined plans than the mind can even conceive. Listening to a doctor on the radio, he said something that struck me about America's recent death toll. Imagine, he remarked, if 700 commercial airlines and airplanes suddenly fell out of the sky. How, as a nation, would we even begin to grieve? On a more intimate scale, consider Jesus' disciples in the wake of his crucifixion. They had just lost their dearest friend under horrific circumstances. Worse, perhaps, their hope for a restored Israel and their belief in God's salvation, had died with Jesus. They had abandoned their careers and their families to follow this man and spent three years of their lives chasing a dream that had come crashing down around them. This was not part of the plan. 
And then, miraculously, Jesus came back from the dead, appearing in their midst like a ghost, but very much alive. With renewed vigor, one can imagine the disciples resurrected their plan to reclaim the kingdom of Israel. Surely, now that Christ had demonstrated his divinity to the world beyond a shadow of a doubt, they could begin ushering in that new reality in earnest. No more wandering around in the wilderness, preaching to small crowds in backwater villages, scraping together enough food and money to survive. No more hiding in shadows like rats, terrified of the Sadducees and Pharisees and the Romans. Lord, one of the disciples hopefully asks Jesus, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? But Jesus' reply is typically evasive. And after a month with Jesus, they probably begin to wonder if that was ever going to happen. He'd hardly left the house they were staying in, acting more like a couch surfer than a messiah. Jesus hadn't marched back into Jerusalem to confront Pontius Pilate or gone much of anywhere, preferring to bide his time with the disciples, talking about scripture and something called the Holy Spirit, which probably sounded to them like a lot of New Age baloney. Then, as suddenly as he'd returned, Jesus was gone again. Ascended to heaven. Gone fishing, as they say. That wasn't part of the plan either. But by now, I suspect the disciples had begun to realize that God had little use for their plans. Disappointment is a fairly common aspect of the human experience. It's something we all know. Our plans are often dashed like waves upon a rocky shore, hopes devastated, dreams brought to a sudden end by a rude awakening. Sometimes we even begin to anticipate disappointment, to expect it like another bad trip through the drive-thru. Last week, we got a dog. A golden retriever, a perfect specimen of the sort that my wife Angela had always wanted. It had been a long time coming as I was pretty resistant to the idea. But I finally gave in and we put down a deposit and there was nothing to do but wait for a week or so until we could go pick it up in St. Louis. But that entire time, Angela was in misery. She was afraid to hope, convincing herself that all of this was some kind of cruel scam that it was too good to be true. What if there's something wrong with the dog, she'd wonder aloud. What if the breeder is going to keep our deposit and never bring the dog, she'd suddenly blurt out over dinner. What if, she asked like some dyslexic atheist, there is no dog. The disciples might have been asking themselves something similar when Jesus was crucified. What if there is no God? But before long, something remarkable happened. Amidst the ruins of their plans, the Holy Spirit began to move. Isn't that how it often goes? Make a plan, God laughs or cries. But God's will, the Holy Spirit, finds a way to navigate the ruins and build something new. Still huddled in their apartment, languishing in disappointment, 
A rush of violent wind moved through the disciples like a tornado manifesting in their living room. The noise was so cacophonous that it drew the attention of people walking by outside. Tongues of fire descended in a new kind of baptism. People began speaking a hundred other languages, but only hearing their own. And each of them came to believe that day in a new reality. They might have clung to their old beliefs, regardless of what they'd seen. They might have convinced themselves that these disciples were merely drunk or crazy. They might have stuck to the plan no matter what. I got on that airplane when I was so sick because I was so determined to stick to the plan. I refused to change the proverbial itinerary, refused to accept that circumstances had changed. I refused to be disappointed. But nonetheless, I was. If all of those people on Pentecost refused to surrender their original plans or beliefs, they would never have been baptized. The seed that became the church would never have been planted. We wouldn't be here right now. To be fair, most of us aren't here. Our plans as a church have also been disrupted and disappointed. We had to cancel or postpone a lot of the things that we've been looking forward to this spring. And today, after the service, we'll be gathering online for our annual meeting to try to chart a course for the year ahead, despite the fact that we have no idea what the year ahead looks like. But on Pentecost, we are reminded that we have to leave room for the spirits to move. Now in my line of work, there is a very fine line between leaving room for the spirits and being perceived as lazy or unprepared. When it comes to planning ahead, I personally like to build a scaffold, if you will, a skeleton, a rough sketch, and let God fill in the details. But I know sometimes that makes people anxious. People want to know where a leader is taking them. Just ask Moses. And no one likes it when there are too many what-ifs, too many unanswered questions, too many unknowns. But the truth is, friends, there always are, no matter how meticulously we plan for the future. And so as we gather today to plan for the year ahead, I admit that we don't have all the answers, but we will adapt to the circumstances we find ourselves in. We will plan for the things that we can, and we will leave room for the Holy Spirit to move in our church and in our lives and in our world, shaping a new reality and a new plan. Amen.